Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Barbara Cook died of respiratory failure on August 8, 2017. I had the privilege of interviewing her at her home in Manhattan on June 21, 2016, for the publication of her memoir, Then and Now. Barbara Cook was Marion the Librarian in the original The Music Man, originated the role of Kunaganda in Leonard Bernstein's Candide. And this memoir tells the story of her life, is considered one of America's legendary singers. And this memoir tells the story of her life. First question, though, it says, with Tom Santo Pietro, how did that work? How did working with him go? It worked very well because... Actually, I wrote everything in the book and sort of handed him all these scribblings, and he organized it into a book. I know, he helped tremendously, but I did all of the writing. You began this five years ago, is that correct? About, yes. Just, you know, a lot of it was about thinking about it, too, not just actually putting pen to paper. I've been asked to do it for some time now by different people, and I thought, who the hell cares, is what I thought. They came to me. Harper Collins, and convinced me that I might be able to help people. Because, you know, I had some, I've gone through some bad times and come out the other end. And sometimes it's good to know that you can do that. So it occurred to me that maybe I could help some people. That's why I finally thought, yeah, let's do it. When you began working on it, the difficulty was just trying to dredge up those old memories of your home life because you said in the book, you felt that your, your mother thought that you had killed your sister because she contracted a disease. Well, she talked about that to friends or family within my hearing when I was just a little girl. And you know, you take things at face value when you're three years old. I think my mother probably said something like, Pat might have lived if Barbara hadn't given her whooping cough. So as a three-year-old, you, you translate that differently. And so I grew up thinking that I was responsible for my sister's death, even though I knew I didn't give her anything, but, you know. So finally, one of my smarter therapists said, has it ever occurred to you that she got it, you know? I still have reminiscences and reverberations from that, growing up thinking that I was responsible for her death. Therapy helped. Back in the Atlanta days, you knew that racism was wrong. I don't want to be sounding like I'm patting myself on the back. I really don't. And I don't completely understand why I was so upset by all this, because my family was like every other family, you know. And my mother was very prejudiced. If I went out with a Jewish guy, oh, you're going out with a kite tonight. You know, that's what I grew up with. But somehow, when I was very young, I didn't like the way blacks were treated in the South. I mean, more than didn't like it. It just annoyed the hell out of me. 
I couldn't figure out where it came from. I still don't know where it comes from. I have no idea why it has always, always struck me as just ridiculous. Ridiculous. And then you came to New York and you were home. Well, absolutely. I belong here. There's no question about it. I didn't belong there. It's true. From lots of different reasons. Even now, you know, the South ain't like the East, you know, Northeast. It just ain't. It ain't like uh, the West Coast. When you came to New York, there doesn't seem to be much mention of the fact that you had this extraordinary voice. Were you aware you had this amazing voice or just you thought, oh, I can sing? Well, I didn't think of it as amazing. I knew I had a very good voice. I didn't really know, I think, how good it was. It's an exceptional voice. It's just pure luck. Well, I guess it's pure luck. And then a lot of people have talent. But they also don't have the drive, I think, to, or they may have the drive. I think you have to have that because there are a hell of a lot of people wanting to get there. You went off in 1950 to Tam, it was a, a summer camp. How did that help you in terms of understanding what you needed to do to make it in New York? That was a wonderful way for me to, to begin. The man that I worked against, the juvenile, juvenile and ingenue roles, was Jack Cassidy. Now, at that point, Jack had already done 21 shows, but there were so many shows happening all the time that if you were in a secondary role, they didn't scream and yell if you wanted to run to something else. So he had done 21 shows. Until then, it was very easy for me to to look at these people on stage and think of them as gods. How could I ever join them on stage doing this, you know? And I wasn't thinking about how well I sing. I was just thinking about how much I was missing, missing in the sense of what was needed. It helped me very much to be working with those people who had done so many shows, and I, and I was keeping up with them. So I thought, hmm, I guess I'm not too bad. How did you get over the fear of auditions? I don't think I ever got over the fear of anything. I was very fearful, so much so that... I would be afraid to meet somebody in their office or something, shake hands and have a little conversation. So I'm surprised in a way that I did manage to do what I did because of the fear that was constantly getting in the way. How did you manage to overcome that to be able even to go to these auditions? Well, I guess I wanted it badly enough. I don't know what else to say. My desire to perform was stronger than my fear. I suppose. Well, your first show was Flahuli, and when I spoke with Burton Lane several years ago, he said Yip Harburg had approached him, and he said, there's no way I'm going to do this show because it's so bizarre. But you actually did it, and you worked with Ema Sumac. What was she like? Well, she was very nice. Her husband was with her all the time. Moises, she used to call him Moises. It's Moise, I'm sure. But she said Moises. She really was from Peru. She was not from Brooklyn or something. And she had her whole family with her, I think two or three kids. And uh, her husband, she did what he wrote for her, uh, obligados and things, you know. And uh, she was very interesting, incredible range. And very nice. They were, you know, very nice people. I recall the in the um, finale, you're singing and she's singing. And it's the only time that Barbara Cook and Ema 
Sumac are actually singing in the same song. It's almost dissonant. Well, I haven't heard that in years, and <laughs> I haven't thought about the show in years. Long time ago, you know. Well, the show itself was almost legendary because it was this leftist show that just didn't make it and had puppets and Professor Irwin Corey. Do you remember oh, him? My. Yeah, sure. How could I not remember him? Yeah. Do you remember anything about him? He didn't want to be touched because he was supposed to be supernatural or something in the show. Only he's, he decided that nobody else did. And, uh, you know, when you work, I don't know. It, it was okay. We didn't have any great big brawl or anything, but uh, he was a little touchy. He was very good at what he did. And you have no idea what the show was actually like because you were never in the audience to watch it. Well, you know, I had the script, but I still didn't know. <laughs> in those early days when you're looking at that or plain and fancy, these are shows where you're an ingenue and you've gotten this role. Are you really necessarily thinking about looking at the script and going, gee, I don't know about this? Or you're going, holy cow, I got the job. Yeah, lots of holy cow, especially that first one. Yeah, I'd been in New York three years. I don't think I'd really even come close, really close, to getting something before. So when my agent called me and said, are you sitting down, you know, got the job, I, I was ecstatic, as you can imagine. I'd finally, you know, right or wrong, good or bad, I was going to be up there. And then came Plain and Fancy, and you also began doing Bell Telephone Hours around that oh, time. Yeah. Oh, that was wonderful, yeah. It's an hour show, musical show. And it was a full orchestra, live. It's live. <laughs> oh, yes. So, you know, you had to know what you were doing. Was there any stage fright in that because it was going out? Or Oh, I'm sure there was, yeah. I don't remember that very well, the stage fright part. I remember that it was a wonderful feeling to sing with that big orchestra, live, you know. But the live part's hard, though. You can't screw up. Well, it was all used to be live, don't forget. Right. 1955, you did the Ed Sullivan show. Do you remember that one at all? Did I do it when I was in a show? It was because you were in the show. All it said in IMDb was that you did it. I have no idea. I think that's probably what it was. You know how you used to highlight different shows from time right. to time? I remember doing it, but I don't remember what I did or what the show was and all that. Ages ago. <laughs> well, I was, yeah. I'm lucky if I can remember yesterday. <laughs> What are you doing to me? Candide, of course, was the show that put you on the map. You worked with Leonard Bernstein and Lillian Hellman. Someone told me he used to call her Uncle Lil. Frankly, I don't think so. He called me Bobby. He's the only person who's been allowed to call me Bobby. I don't really like that. Well, listeners, please know that I do not like to be called Bobby. <laughs> you tell the story in Then and Now, Barbara Cook. You tell the story of how in your audition you said you would do an aria, and he played the piano and just did it. Well, what happened is I had two things arranged to sing for him. And when I finished the first one, he said, what else do you have? And when I told him that, he said, don't do that. I know exactly how you do that. And then I hadn't planned anything else. But my voice teacher, Bob Colvin, who was just great for me and for a lot of people, he insisted in his, in his classes, that if no matter what kind of singing you plan to do, didn't matter, you had to learn arias. 
he thought that was a great way to build your voice and so forth. So I had learned, you know, right or wrong, I had learned all these arias, and I had all these big high notes that I didn't really pay attention to. I thought it was me acting like an opera singer, you know. I didn't take them seriously. Then when Bernstein asked me, wanted me to sing something else, and I was thinking high notes because I knew I had seen the score. I saw all those lines up there above the staff. I don't read music, but I certainly realize there's a lot of high notes in this thing. And so I wanted to do high notes, and I just came up with Madame Butterfly's entrance music. And uh, <laughs> I didn't really think I was going to have to do it. I said, I, I can do that, but I don't have the music. He said, that's okay, I know it. He said, I don't have the piano. <laughs> oh, my dear, my dear, how did I ever have the kind of guts to do that? I do not know. Well, you also had the guts to say to Bernstein at one point, why don't you do this on Glitter and Be Gay? Yeah, I did. <laughs> I asked him to change the change this, this music, just a couple of bars or one bar or something. And he said, oh, yeah, and he changed it. I believe the line is, um, I'll droop my wings, and yeah. then you bring down well, the... He wrote then, how can I explain this? At the end, that you sing a high C and just stop. Ah, and just stop, right? That ain't a high C, by the way. And uh, I thought, here I droop my wings. Ah, can't, can't do that now. And I thought it should, it should be a glissando. I think that's what they call it. As, as your wings droop, so does the note droop. That seemed, and also is a lot easier to sing than just cutting off a C. A lot easier. So I, I suggested that, and he said, oh, yeah. That song is a number of opera singers have done it, and your version is still considered the best version. Yet in Then and Now, you say, I see so many things wrong with it. When you hear it, what exactly... my version? Yeah, what exactly yeah. do you hear wrong? I know there are certain things he wanted me to do, wanted the singer to do, that I was never able to do. The ha-ha-has, for instance, most people think of them as runs. They were not runs. They were separate ha-ha-has, which is hard because each one is a little push, right? Ba-ba-ba, ha-ha-ha-ha-ha. Hear that? I don't know if you can hear the hear that. It's not smooth, in other right. words. So they go, ah, 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 You know, it just doesn't make any sense. Because his intention was for it to sound as much like laughter as possible, right? Well, uh, it doesn't sound like laughter. That's one of the big mistakes that people make. The other is they act like they've lost their minds. You know, I just think of it as a sort of super dramatic teenager or something. Do you know? People go crazy. Really, it's like they've lost their minds. It's insane. I can't watch most of it. But I think they're terrible. I mean, terrible, really fine singers suddenly seem to lose their minds. Is it also because they don't quite get what the song is? Like you say, that it's a teenager talking about... Well, I think they don't trust what the song is. Because they think they've got to make it funny or something. I mean, it's just, I don't know. But it's bad acting. I've seen so many mediocre comedies where people push rather than trust what the script is saying. Well, I guess it's a similar thing. If you're singing any song, even a comic song, you're playing it straight in the song, correct? You're not trying to make it funny. No. If it's a good song, you don't have to do that. It is funny. All you have to do is do it. 
like the song Ice Cream from She Loves Me. I don't even think of Ice Cream as a particularly funny song. I'm thinking, I mean, she's talking about life-changing stuff, you know? So I do it earnestly. When we're in the audience, we're hearing ice cream. Yeah. Well, it happens to be a humorous idea, but I don't think she sees it as humorous. So you're playing within the context of the role. That's what I'm trying to do, yeah. When you're just singing a song on in a concert, are you thinking about the role or the song or the interpretation? I think it depends on the song. Usually, there's something about the song that appeals to me in the first place, you know, and very often... It's uh, the text, the, 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 what, it's, what the song is trying to say, you know? So I don't necessarily try to give it my interpretation. I try to figure out what the author is trying to say and do it. Do you do any research beyond just looking at the lyrics? No, not usually. You did, a, I think it was a medley of songs from Passion inside Sondheim on Sondheim. It's great music. I mean, oh, I know the the song you mean. That's on difficult. I know the one you mean, though. Yeah, it was hard, very hard to learn. It's hard to learn. I know that. I would, worked on that very hard. Would you ever do that one in concert? I don't think so. Maybe if it were an evening of Sondheim or something. Maybe then. Yeah. Barbara Cook, getting back to your career, the big show was Music Man, and you talked in then and now about working with Preston, that it was an absolute delight working with Robert Preston. Absolutely. He was a delightful guy and very easy to work with and a fine actor. And we also had a very nice working relationship. Every performance while I was finishing my makeup, he was already, he was on before me. And we'd talk about politics or whatever was going on in the world. Wonderful conversations, every every performance. And yet, he'd walk out the door, and I would never feel that I really knew him. He was a very private person. But you'd never immediately think that at all, because he was so kind of gregarious and open and fun and, and a wonderful, wonderful guy to work with. If a show is a success, does that kind of override, you think, a lot of tensions that might go on otherwise? Or do the tensions sometimes still exist? Oh, the, the tensions can can exist. I've been pretty fortunate. I've usually worked with people that were easy to work with. You know, occasionally, somebody will be in a funny mood or something. Danny Massey and I had a problem in the beginning, but he was going through a very difficult time with his wife, and so he was not in a great mood in general. One night on stage, he yanked my arm or something the way that I didn't like, and I said to the stage, I'm going back there. And the stage manager said, now wait till after the show and we'll both go in. We'll talk to him. Open the door to go in. And before I opened my mouth, Danny said, you're right. So <laughs> it's like falling over the cliff, you know. And uh, from then on, we were perfectly fine. When I interviewed Carol Channing, and she was in two huge hit shows, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and Hello, Dolly. She said in both shows on the road, there was a point where everything clicked and came together, whereas in other shows, it just didn't. You mean didn't. on the road in rehearsal before we yeah, came in? Yeah, yeah. That there would be a certain performance, and it would click, and she would go, aha, we've got it. Did you feel that way about, about any of these shows? Did your mind work in that way? 
I don't remember doing that. I think I know what she's talking about. Of course, you get a feeling that it feels right or, or this will never go. You, you get those feelings. You can be wrong either way. And also, if you depend on the reception you're getting in Philadelphia, you can be very surprised when you get to New York. That's happened, God knows, for a lot of us. And then came She Loves Me. And it got great reviews and could never really find an audience. Well, I think it did, but it didn't find as big an audience as we had hoped. We ran, I think, about nine, ten months, something like that. But don't forget, that is like a little uh, string quartet. And here we had Hello, Dolly! at the same time. It's like 15 symphony orchestras. We were this little, perfect little show. It's perfect. And, well, and look, it's still around. Judy Kuhn was the first person who did the first big revival, and she was wonderful, just wonderful. When you look back on that series of shows, is there any of those shows that well, stands out in a way that... Music Man, certainly. Yeah. You know, you can't... You have to say that was a big hit. That night after we did the opening, and of course in those days, we used to go to Sardi's, and then you'd hear the reviews. Somebody would read a review, right? And so we knew immediately that we had a huge, huge hit. And that night, just before I opened the door, my husband was with me. He said... Barbara, do you realize what has happened? He said, you're a hit and a hit. And I immediately said, oh, my God, how long am I going to have to play this? And yet I began to enjoy having a long run and working on the, the character because I could learn so much more doing it over and over and over and over. And also... I learn more about how to do it. I'm, I would give myself uh, little tasks so I wouldn't be bored. You know, I'd say, can, now, Barbara, can you stand, just stand there and sing this song for the people instead of having to do 15 things? Can you just stand there and do it, stand there and say it to them? Ain't always easy. You know, the arm wants to do that. Because you also said in the book that you get annoyed at people like Streisand or Merman who would sometimes just walk through a role. I think if you're in the audience, yeah, if you don't get what you're expecting, you sure. Also, Streisand in Funny Girl, I saw that several times because she was, she was so marvelous. And she was not, wasn't always marvelous. She would kind of walk through it sometimes. Merman would do the same thing. I saw Gypsy several times because of Merman's performance. But you can't really see another show when you're in a show either. If you're in The Music Man, there's no night off for you to go see another show. Well, actually, I did see that. If I remember correctly, Bob and I, we had it written in the contract that we could take our vacations together, which they don't usually do. So I did see the show with two other people, obviously. Right. I, didn't, I never saw Robert Preston. I never saw him in the role because we took our time off the same same time. Well, you did finally see him in the movie. It's not the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed the movie, except, okay, I'm going to say a dirty word. The streets are too clean. There is no shit in the streets in the film. Do you know what I mean? Horses never did it in that movie. It wasn't real enough. 
I guess is what I'm trying to say. You didn't get the role. Did you audition at least for it, or did mm-hmm. they? Imme- I did. And I did two separate when you try. Oh, for uh, yeah, screen test. Yes, yes, yes. I did two of them. Well, Meredith really wanted me to do it, and Tique DaCosta, our director, really wanted me to do it. But I had no name nationally whatsoever. And, you know, Bob almost didn't get it, I'm told, because we had the same agent at Woody Morris. And they were afraid that he was not known at all in, the, in Europe. So he very nearly didn't get it. And that really would have been awful if he hadn't gotten that. So there was this run of shows. Meanwhile, you're, you know, you have your home life and it's going up and down and you started to drink. But you didn't think there was any problem there at that particular time. Well, I think most people don't. You're going along and you drink and suddenly alcoholism is creeping up behind you, but you don't really realize that. You just think, well, what the hell? I'm, you know, doing my work. Leave me alone. Was there any period when you weren't working, doing, you know, a tour or television? Did I mess up? I never, ever, ever drank before the show. That would have scared the hell out of me. I never did that. So I think I was okay in that sense, but my life was just falling apart, as you can imagine. And finally, it really got bad, and and my son decided that he didn't want to live with me anymore, and he went to live with his father. And that was devastating for me, because he was the only thing, really, that was giving my life any kind of cohesion, any kind of structure. There's mention that you were doing a series of Gershwin concerts or a TV show at around the low point. There was a show that was all Gershwin. Again, it's called The Gershwin Years, I think. And there were four of us. And it was a a concert that we put together and toured with uh, about a year. I had already become a drunk. I think I probably didn't realize it yet. But uh, the drinking began when my marriage started falling apart. And I started drinking. That's when it began. And when you were at the low point, was it Wally Harper who suggested you you move into cabaret, into doing performances on your own? No. Somebody else who knew both of us suggested we get together because Wally had a reputation as being the finest accompanist around. So this guy said he wanted to do a, a put a concert together because I hadn't sung in the city in a long time, four or five years. And uh, he never did get that concert together. But in the meantime, Wally and I got some material together, and the people who owned a little club on 45th Street, 6th Street, uh, Brothers and Sisters was the club, and they heard that we had gotten some material together. And we did go to, in Connecticut, the Eugene O'Neill Center. We did do that one night. And uh, it went very well. I was so nervous. Oh, my God. Oh, when I think of it now. Uh, but it went extremely well. And they heard about it and asked us to come into Brothers and Sisters for, I guess, a week or so. And then we played the rest of the summer there because it was a huge hit, just huge. And I had long, a long time ago, I did cabaret. So it wasn't all that new to me. A lot of people are terrified of the idea, and I never was. I've been singing like that for friends and people all my life, you know, to just sit and sing. 
when you were much younger, you'd actually done an album, one from the heart. So you even had experience doing solo work. Oh, yes. Remember, I was born, I breathed, I sang. I remember seeing those initial, you know, Barbara Cook is back, only she's... Then they would talk about your weight, and I'm like, what's that about? Well, yeah. Well, well, when people change that much, I understand people wanting to talk about it. But what was annoying was when I did the first Carnegie concert, it was so good. I was good. The night worked. Because at that point... I'd never done big concerts, and certainly not one at Carnegie. And I knew I could sing. I, you know, I was nervous about that, finally. In the beginning, I was. And then I thought, wait a minute, come on. And then I wanted to show off, because I knew I was singing some of this stuff very well. And that was sort of taken care of. But what I didn't know was whether I could, how can I put this, control an evening. If I could make an evening happen, if you it would be a, a thing, a, a happening, right? And that's when it was proven that night that I that I could at, uh, at, at Carnegie that that uh, 75, 1975. And that's when the cabaret and the concerts just took off from there. Well, yeah, and the publicity, my God! Oh, I was going to say it's so annoying. I'd done this extraordinarily good thing, and the New York Times the, the had a big story on it. And, of course, the th big picture of me, very slim, big picture of me, quite fat. They wanted to talk about weight. They didn't want to talk about this tremendous success. It's all about sexism, so, you know. It's all about weight, too. You know, it's not good for you, they say. Some people say, forget it, it doesn't bother you, and all that stuff. But you see somebody weighing 300 pounds, and I, I no matter what, I think, honey, try to do what you can. But you were never that big. Were you? No, but I was pretty big. I never got to 300 pounds, though. And that was when you began controlling your drinking and, I mean, taking better care of yourself. I mean, you're 88 now. You're no, still singing no. and still performing. It was a gift. I don't think I had very much to do with it. What happened is that I don't know if it was because of the alcohol, the drinking, but I began to have really debilitating panic attacks. Some people really, really don't know what you mean when you're talking about a panic attack. With, with mine, there was always one moment when I thought I was dying. I thought there's no way a human body can withstand what is happening to me. The heart and, you know, the breathing, and it's just awful. You think you're dying. I mean, <laughs> it's pretty scary. Then, then people didn't talk about it so much, and you couldn't go and read a book about it. It's different now. People know about panic attacks. I didn't, I never heard about it. And suddenly these things are happening to me. And I think, it's me, I'm crazy, I'm nuts, I'm neurotic. You kind of gloss over it, but it's one of my favorite recordings. How did you get involved in Follies in Concert? Uh, let me see. The man who produced it and produced the recording called me. I worked with him before and asked me if I wanted to do it. Actually, I think I heard it from my manager, too. I heard who was going to be involved. I didn't know Stephen's music as well then as I do now. It sounded like a good thing. I didn't figure it's going to be as big a thing as it was. Yeah, right away I thought that that's a nice thing to do. It turned out to be the first full recording of the show. And I just remember listening to it and thinking, my God, the 
you know, losing my mind, and in Buddy's eyes, and and your performance was just well, incredible. Buddy's eyes, oh, what a great song! Stephen has said that I've sort of revived that song, which is very nice. It's not sweet of him to say that. He's uh, very complimentary. Just recently, when I was doing um, Sondheim on Sondheim, he was standing in the wings. He would visit occasionally. He was standing in the wings when I came off at the end of the show. And he was talking about the way I sang, uh, what is the most famous song? that Send he in the Clowns. Yes, thank you. He met me as I came off stage. And he said, how do you do that? How do you do that? And you know what I said? The same way you do. Because you just put yourself in it, and I think he does too. Whether he's aware of that or intends to do it, I don't know. But his life is in his work, which is why it's so doable, so actable. One thing about Sending the Clowns is that there's a lot of lines that refer to the relationships within the show. When you're singing it out of context, is that still in your mind? No. If I'm singing it out of context, I'm just trying to understand what he was trying to say and then trying to say it. Not trying to put my stamp on it or anything, just what's there to, to reveal as much as I know how to, what he intended and what's there. When you're first reading a song, looking at the lyrics, what is the first thing you're looking at? Are you looking at the notes? Are you looking at the words? Are you looking at what is the story here? What is Barbara Cook's approach to a song? It varies. It can either come from very beautiful music, or it may say something that I want to say that seems so clear to me that I want to say it. That gets me right away. There's a song called Stars, written by Janice Ian. And the first time I heard that, I thought, oh, the very last line is, I'll come up singing for you even when I'm down. And I thought, I want to say that. That one line made me pay attention to that song and, and want to do it. It's a beautiful song, I think. What are your favorite songs to sing? Oh, <laughs> it changes, you yeah. know. Some, particularly when a song is new for me or new to me, I can't get out of my head if I really fall in love with it. Well, the reason I ask that is because I noticed that there are certain songs, He Was So Good To Me, Ice Cream, that are in concert after concert. When people used to ask me that question yeah. that you just asked, I would say there are a lot of songs that I love, but I'm particularly in love with He Was Too Good To Me. Yeah, I do love that song. It's right. a great song. He was too good to me. How can I get along now? Ah, oh, so close he stood to me. Everything seems all wrong now. Oh, my God. I know that there's no formula, but is there anything that you can say that makes a song great. But if the song itself is not a very good song, there's not much I can do about that. So I choose great songs, <laughs> or try to. And that's just simply a song that resonates with you. Yeah, usually, more often than not, it's in the lyric, but it can be, of course, just a gorgeous melody or something. Like Dancing in the Dark, I sang that for years before I really knew what it was about. It's Arthur Schwartz who wrote the uh, music who told me what that song was about. It's about life and death. But I mean, you know, I just thought it was a pretty song. And that nice feel, that da-da-da-da-da, you know, that comes in all the time. Dum-da-dum-da-dum, da dum da 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 
and that you know that fill. It's a gorgeous song. I was sitting in the front row of some theater in New York, and there's a guy on stage singing that song, and I was sitting next to Arthur Schwartz, who wrote the wrote the music, and I said, God, Arthur, what does it feel like to have written that gorgeous melody? He says, you know, it's I'm very proud of it, but he said the thing is. Very few people know what the song is about. I said, well, what is it about? That's the first time I got it. It's about life and death, you know? One of the great things, I guess, about singing a lot of songs is that sometimes you might be singing it and suddenly a little spark goes off and you go, oh, that's what that word or line means? Generally speaking, it wouldn't happen in performance because I would have explored that already. I don't think I ever remember it happening in performance. But, you know, in rehearsal and, and learning, it does, sure. Do you listen a lot to your own? No. The only time I usually do that is when somebody says, oh, God, the way you sing, blah, 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 is so wonderful, blah, 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 blah. So I think I'll listen to that. I, you know, what do they mean? What are they getting at? I don't listen to a lot of music the way I used to. I can't hear music and work at the same time because I get distracted. And then I'd start, you know, criticizing mainly. Is your pitch such that you can tell immediately if you're a little bit off? Sometimes, I guess. I, I don't know. As I've gotten older, it's a little more difficult to be in tune. I hope not drastically out of tune, but it used to just come flowing up, you know. And I think now I have to be more careful and think more clearly. A couple of other questions. The grass harp. Did you meet Capote? Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. I had tea or coffee or something in his apartment one afternoon. We had a long, long, long meeting and talk. We talked about his furniture. We talked about, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting, well, it was a very interesting Victorian stuff. And, you know, we talked about furniture. We talked about black wing pencils. He introduced me to black wing pencils. He gave me a few. We talked about the South. We had a very, very nice afternoon together. He was very kind. But the show didn't last. It was a lovely show. I've seen oh, it. I love that tree so much. We all fell in love with the tree. I didn't want to give up that tree. You know, we lived in a tree. Yeah. No, I've seen the show. And yeah. I loved that tree. We all did. I missed that tree. And then there's Carrie. There was not one person in charge of that show, writing, producing, directing, who had ever done a musical before. So it was the first experience for everybody in power. And that was a mistake. Uh, people in New York, uh, Jerry Robbins has called for help sometimes. There's nothing shameful about asking for help. I told them that. How many times did I tell them that? And then I finally at least got Wally over to help with uh, arrangements. They were very annoyed with me for having managed to do that. They thought I was getting him there because he would be on my side, and it's, uh, it's all going to be against them. But they had never done it before, and they didn't ask for help. They didn't. Things as simple as, where do you put songs? Song placement. What kind of song does this need? And at one point I asked them, okay, she has to kill her daughter. 
Well, can you imagine having to kill your daughter? Can you imagine what a moment that could be in a musical if you have a song that says that? Or a song that, I, I asked for a song that talks about the difficulty of doing that. Uh, and I said either it should be about how hard it's to do or I should come to the realization within the song that I have to kill her. That would be even more dramatic. So they wrote this very pretty melody and the song says how quiet the house is going to be when she's gone. Well, it's a very pretty melody, but it didn't have that goddamn thing to do with what I wanted to say or what we needed to say. And you were glad to get out of that one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. There's actually a book about Broadway flops called Not Since Carrie. <laughs> I think I have that somewhere. Barbara Cook, now you've written then and now a memoir. You're still working. Yep. Do you have any albums you're planning to work on? Well, actually, the man who has record, done most of my recordings has asked me to do another, and uh, we're not working on it because I've been working on this book, you know. That's a, a, a long process, much longer than, than I had hoped it would be. Right. Uh, and even when you think you've finished the book, you have to do this, not do that, you know. Uh, and I realized today that one of the people I should have mentioned in the acknowledgments, I forgot to mention, and I... Suzanne at the end of the hallway. And there probably are others, and I hate that, because it's done now. Nothing can be changed now. Right. It's yeah. a done deal. And, you know, I'm sure I'll reread it and think, oh, God, why didn't I say this? Why didn't I say that? So you do have another project that you'll get to, another album, When the Dust Clears. Yes, but believe it or not, now that I'm an authoress, God, I can't believe that I have written a book. I mean, I don't write postcards. I don't write nothing. That's not how I communicate. You know, I sing it. I don't write it. I'm astonished that I actually have a book that's, you know, bound and it's got a cover like all books do, and nice, wonderful things on the back that people have said about the book. I'm astonished. And I keep it out and I look at it all the time because I can't believe it. I just can't believe it. And I, I, hope, I hope people will find it, well, enjoyable is hardly the word because there's a lot of stuff in there that's not exactly enjoyable. Maybe it will help somebody. I don't know. That would be nice. I'd like to think it would. Simply because I've been through some very, very bad, difficult times. And somehow I got through them and had a second career. And I'm still having it. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>